Well, last week we wrapped up our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, and we had been studying that um, since the beginning of the fall, and had really been looking at passages from the Gospel um, through the lens of what can we learn about how we as Christians are called to live in our world. Well, this morning we are kicking off a new study, um, kind of piggybacking on where we have just been, kind of in the study of discipleship. And this time we're going to be looking at the book of 2 Timothy. And um, we're calling this study a call to faithful Christian service in difficult times. Now, we have each one of us responded to the current state of our world uh, differently. We are all individuals, but definitely among the responses that I have witnessed um, from many of you here has been activism and and advocacy. Um, And I think those are are appropriate responses um, as as committed citizens. But what I am also seeing quite often um, is that activism quickly gives way to anger, uh, to anger that is directed at the people on the opposite side of the issue. And that anger then quickly turns into antagonism, harsh language, hatred, and we feel justified in all of those things because we're wrong, right and you are wrong and these things are too important to screw up on. And so pretty much anything can be justified then in light of kind of the gravity of the situation that we perceive around us. I believe that Satan is really wily and that he has figured out how to use this tumultuous political season to divide us, to divide us within the church, not just Democrat against Republican, but Christian against Christian. Because he knows that if he can just keep us at war with one another, if he can just keep dividing us within the church, then we are going to become ineffective and we are going to become useless in God's kingdom building purposes in the world. And I believe that God desires so much more from us than that. He desires more from us than militant activism, more from us than poorly masked hatred about one neighbor in the name of loving another neighbor. This world that we live in needs Jesus. Now as much as ever, our world needs the church It needs the body of Christ. Our world needs you and me as much as ever. But they need us because we are different. We possess something that they need. We are Christ's hands and feet. But this is something that is revealed not in harsh language, right? But in selfless love. Not in our polarizing and isolating ourselves from those who are different than us, who believe different than us, who voted differently. Our world needs us right now to draw together, to unite, to be united by the love of Jesus across party lines, despite political differences, theological differences, doctrinal differences. Our world needs the church at its best right now, not the church at war within itself. Our world needs the church exuding the love of Christ, 
exhibiting that love internally and then extending that love externally into the world. But the only way that we can live into this, that we can be what the world needs us to be, is by first taking the time to draw deeper into the heart of God. The only way that we can love the world the way that it needs to be loved is by drawing deeper into the love of God. A love that was revealed on the cross when Jesus gave himself up entirely out of love for us. I am convinced that God is inviting us into a season of maturing, a season of refinement, so that we can be more effective in the kingdom-building work that he has for us in the world. My spiritual director, Rita, likes to say that God is wooing us into deeper levels of intimacy with him. And I believe that is absolutely true always. God is wooing us into a deeper love relationship with him. But as our engagement in our world increases, it becomes increasingly necessary that we respond to that wooing by stepping into a deeper relationship with God, allowing him to draw us near so that we can be shaped and transformed by him, by his character, by his love. little bit of a mechanical shift here. Many of you knew that I spent time in Colorado after college. I was there for four years. And up until that point in my life, I hadn't really done a lot of camping. But Colorado is like heaven for outdoorsmen. And, and so I learned to camp. And I fell into a community of folks that had grown up in Colorado and knew all of the places to go where you could camp for free that weren't in campgrounds. And so we did a lot of camping. And there were some assumptions made about my knowledge of camping. So I remember one of the early trips camping. We pulled into a clearing. We set up our campsite. And then all of my, we, they got a fire started, but then all of my friends took off to play some bocce ball game in the woods. And I said that I would stay and tend the fire. Well, by the time my friends got back, the fire was an inferno because I had just kept stoking the fire. I didn't want it to go out. And before I knew it, I mean, it was, it was raging to the point where the embers were sparking off and burning holes through things that people had set around the fire, which I did not realize until after the fact. Another camping trip, a similar story, we, we tried to find a camping spot along a river, and the, there are train tracks all along the river. And so as far as we drove, we just were never able to find a camping spot. And so finally, out of desperation, we pulled off and we set up camp in what turned out to be basically a wind tunnel. And we set up camp and started trying to light a fire and realized that we had no kindling because this trip I wasn't with all of my savvy Colorado friends. And so we pulled out a map and were like ripping pages out of the map and like trying to get the fire started. And then the wind caught it. And again, <laughs> that fire was like, Whoo! Right, So fan the flame of the fire that God has within you. <laughs> well, the passage of scripture that we're going to look at today is the passage that Laura and Anna read earlier, um, in which Paul encourages us to tend that flame, 
that God has planted within each one of us. And so that is what we're going to spend some time reflecting on um, this morning. So I'm going to begin by reading a little bit more of the passage than they did. Uh, I'll begin at the beginning of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, and it should be on the screen behind me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Lord, open our hearts to hear from you this morning. These are challenging times that we are living in, but I am convinced that most times are challenging. Lord, we ask that you would draw us to your heart, that you would help us to ignite that flame of desire within us to draw near to you so that we can be the hands and feet that this world desperately needs. In Jesus' name, amen. So a little bit about 2 Timothy. It's maybe a book that we're a little bit less familiar with than the Gospels. So 2 Timothy was written by Paul uh, when he was in prison in Rome. But this was not his first imprisonment, when he had been on house arrest and in a home um, with quite a bit of liberty. Um, At this point, this is his last imprisonment. And this is likely um, the last letter that Paul wrote. Uh, the end is in sight. And we know this because later on in this letter, he says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So Paul sees the end of his ministry. He's aware that things might not end well for him. And he's sitting in probably an underground cell. If any of you have toured in Rome, you can actually go and see a a cell that they say is perhaps the one that Paul was imprisoned in. And it's just a big, you know, looks like a concrete cistern with like a trap door in the ceiling to let light and food in. And he's there awaiting trial. And he's not expecting to be acquitted at this point. During the same time, the persecution under Emperor Nero was in full swing. Um, And so Paul um, is expecting that he will most likely be condemned to death and beheaded because this is the way um, that Roman citizens were often um, dealt with when they were arrested for a crime. So this letter is written at a time when the question of survival was utmost in Paul's mind. Not only his own survival, but also the survival of this ministry, this fledgling church that he has devoted his life to birthing around the Mediterranean. Now we know that Paul had worked as a missionary for 30 years by this point. 30 years planting churches, defending the faith against heresy. 
but now he's in prison. Nero is bent on destroying the church. The heretical teachings are on the increase. Uh, in the verses right after this, Paul mentions that the entire church in Asia has recently just walked away from the faith because of a false teacher. And so understandably, heavy on Paul's mind at this point is the question of who is going to carry on his work when he is gone. And Timothy, the recipient of this letter, and Paul's longtime travel companion, is the one that Paul settles on, that he is determined is the person to carry on his work. So the second letter to Timothy is an intensely personal letter. In it, Paul shares his deep affection for Timothy, and we see that in the greeting here at the beginning. Um, and he, in this letter, he also he begins to prepare Timothy for the, for the task that lays before him, for this role of evangelist and church planter that Timothy is now going to be taking on. So from the, the rest of the New Testament, we know that um, Timothy had been traveling around with Paul for about 15 years. So for about half of Paul's ministry, Timothy was with him. He traveled with um, Paul on his second and third missionary journeys around the Mediterranean, and he'd been sent on several special missions by Paul during the course of that time, once to Thessalonica, another to Corinth. And then at one point for a period of years, Paul actually left Timothy in Ephesus in charge of the church there. So Timothy has had an important role in the ministry. Uh, and now he's about to get a much more significant role. He's going to actually have all of the responsibility laid on him. But if you paid attention to the verses that I just read, it's clear from the way that Paul addresses Timothy that Timothy does not feel adequate for this task. Timothy was quite young. Now, this is a pretty young congregation, but it's likely that Timothy was in his 30s at this point. Um, and there's much language in, in these two letters um, that make it clear that, that he feels young. Paul tells him to not let anyone despise his youth, and he tells him to shun youthful passions. So regardless of his age, Timothy feels young. We also know that, that Timothy was prone to illness. Later in this letter, letter Paul is giving Timothy some, some remedies for stomach issues. So he was on the sickly side. And we also know just from these opening lines that Timothy was timid. He was shy, probably would have been described as an introvert today. So Paul and Timothy were quite different, but it was their differences that had made them work well together. Paul was bold, Timothy was timid, but he was indispensable to Paul. He provided a lot of the background support and attention to detail that impetuous Paul needed in his work. But now young, frail, timid Timothy is being asked to fill these huge shoes of Paul. Greatness is being thrust upon him. And like so many of the great leaders of the faith before him, Moses, Jeremiah, Esther, Timothy is initially reluctant to accept this role. But Paul knows Timothy. He knows that Timothy probably wouldn't choose this new leadership role. And so Paul begins this letter by urging Timothy to be strong, to be brave, to be faithful, 
in leading the church, even in these troubled times, and to do it in a really exemplary way, in a way that is beyond reproach. Paul uses the phrase, but as for you, four different times in the course of this letter, calling Timothy to be different, not to yield to the pressures of the world around him by public opinion, but to rise above these things and to stand firm in the way of life that Paul has introduced him to in the gospel. Well, I believe this book is incredibly relevant for us today because I believe that, the God, that God is calling our church and the church to rise up and to lead in the midst of troubled times. That he's calling us to be strong, to be brave, to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel, pursuing justice, caring for the marginalized, but to do it in a way that is beyond reproach, shaped by the Spirit of God that gives power and love and self-discipline, as Paul says in verse 7, not shaped by the spirit of this world. Now, if you were like me, you have moments that stretch into hours when you feel completely overwhelmed and inadequate for this task. I have said multiple times recently that I feel inadequate to lead sanctuary in this midst of this post-election reality. We have Republicans, we have Democrats, we have people on every side of all of the issues that are members of this congregation. And to be a pastor that charts a course through the midst of that and provide, cre helps create a space where we can all come and be welcome to worship, that is challenging. I feel inadequate for this. I re recently stepped into a position of leadership with our entire classes, the, the region that our church is a part of. Right as kind of a bunch of stuff hit the fan. And I get to be right in the middle of charting a course through that. The first time a female has ever held that role. I feel so inadequate to that. And I would imagine that many of you, if you are like me, you watch the news, you're, you're overwhelmed by what you see happening, and yet you feel inadequate to know how to engage. These are overwhelming times. And often when we feel inadequate, the tendency can be a couple of things. We may choose to just sit back and watch, observe, learn, not engage, allow someone else to lead, or we may simply put our heads down and, and plow ahead like a bull in a china shop, justifying all sorts of behaviors because we are doing the best that we can. Well, much of the time, inadequacy becomes for us an easy justification for poor behavior or inaction. Most of us probably would have not chosen to be in the situation that we are in today, living in such a polarized nation. Probably most of us would not choose to be the minority as Christians in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. It wasn't Paul's choice to be an apostle. God had to literally strike him blind in the middle of the freeway to get his attention, to get him to change course. 
But the truth is that God has chosen us. Just as he chose Paul, just as he chose Timothy to be his workers in the field. Look at Moses. Look at Jonah. None of them chose their positions of leadership. In fact, they tried running as fast as they could in the opposite direction. Jonah quite literally. He got swallowed by a fish and spit out on the shore where he was supposed to go. All of them felt inadequate to the task, and yet God chose them. He equipped them. And then in response, they were faithful. Well, in the same way, God has called us. God has chosen us. And he has also equipped us. In many ways, I want to suggest that our feelings of inadequacy are false. They are an illusion. Just as with Timothy, God has equipped each one of us. And at the beginning of this letter, Paul reminds Timothy of all the ways that God has been working in his life from the very beginning to prepare him for this moment. He said, remember your mother and your grandmother and the faith that they had that they poured into you. Many of us were raised by loving, Christ-centered families that have been shaping us and forming us and creating in us a Christian worldview and a, a view of the way things ought to be. And even if you weren't raised by Christian parents, you likely had a Christian community that came around you at some point that nurtured you, friendships that poured into you and helped shape you and prepare you for the work that is before you today. God has given each one of us unique gifts and talents. Unique gifts and talents that he intends not just for your benefit, for your glory, but for the benefit of the world that you are in the midst of. God has prepared you for the work that he has put before you. As followers of Jesus, each one of us has also been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised before he departed at the end of his physical ministry that after he left, he would send his spirit. The spirit that Paul says here does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Power, love, and self-discipline. This is how God calls us and also equips us to engage our world. Not timidly, but with power. Power that comes from him. But also with love and self-discipline. And these last two I see slipping in these divided times. We are allowing exasperation and frustration and despair to become excuses for treating one another poorly, for saying unkind and hurtful things. And I am convinced that the only solution to that is to press deeper into the heart of God, to rekindle the flame within us by being touched by the flame of his love. Now, I mentioned that I am now in this leadership position with our classes, and there's a situation that has come up that um, this week had me angry. I am not an angry person, and I don't deal well when I become angry. 
and I was angry. And I'm trying to write this sermon that calls me to self-discipline and love, and I'm like, oh, I did not feel it. And Friday rolled around, and I had to, I had to write a sermon. But I, Mark was like, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm raging. <laughs> I'm raging inside. I'm going to the gym. I've started this routine a few times a week. I drop Alistair at school, and I go to the gym, and I put in my earbuds, and I listen to all sons and daughters worship music, and I walk on the treadmill. And it has become for me this centering place. Because all sons and daughters, oh, look them up. They are like, they are speaking my soul language. <laughs> and I, I walked on the treadmill, and then I ran on the treadmill, and I, I took the entire morning Friday trying to draw closer to the heart of God. It was hard work stepping out from that place of anger and into God's heart so that I could replace that anger with love. It took 30 minutes of listening to worship music. It took 30 minutes of walking and running harder on the treadmill than I would normally. It took going home and sitting in my bedroom with a cup of coffee and just being quiet, praying to God. It took some time reading the Bible. But I knew that I couldn't come here this morning and preach a sermon on this unless I had allowed it to touch me. And I'm confident that that process is a process that each one of us desperately needs to submit ourselves to if we are going to be effective in our engagement with the world. It is so easy to just live in that place of anger and to allow that place of anger to fuel us. But when that is the way we engage, I believe that we are completely ineffective in, in lasting change that this world needs. Love and self-discipline is what is going to allow God to work through us and transform this world. I was also convicted this week of the number of times that I look at Facebook or my email during the day, right? It's so easy for us now. You've got that phone in your pocket, you're waiting in line, you're riding the elevator, you're sitting on the toilet, and you just flip open your phone and just start scrolling through Facebook, right? Every one of those vacant moments then is being fueled by what? The rage of the world. And I began realizing, what if I just didn't pick up my phone in those moments and I took those spare moments waiting for Alistair to get out of school or walking to my car or, heaven forbid, sitting at a stoplight. I would never do it driving. Um, rather than looking at Facebook, just being present with my Lord, lifting up my world in prayer. Such a simple change that I think would have such profound impacts on my attitude. So perhaps fanning into flame the gift of the Spirit that is already within us means curbing our ferocious appetite for news, disciplining ourselves to use those free moments to be present with the Lord. Maybe it means taking some time to be in prayer 
to be in the Word, to listen to some uplifting music. But I think we have to be intentional about it. Because if we're not intentional, we're going to fall back into the same old patterns and the patterns that we see mirrored all around us. We have to be intentional about it. But as, as members of the church, we live in a community of, of believers that span thousands of years now who have set in place practices that are tried and true for drawing us deeper into the heart of God. Prayer, time in the word, those are a couple of them. But if you find the, the same old things kind of leaving you dry, let's talk about some fresh ways that you could engage with God. There are so many different practices out there. The practice of examine, spending some time at the end of the day, reflecting back over your day and looking for the evidence of God's grace in your day. It's a powerful practice because you probably missed 90% of the way that God was working in your life. Centering prayer, just listening prayer, rather than sitting down and just yammering off all the things that you need from God, all the people that are sick, just spending some time being quiet, listening for God's voice. Journaling, it's another great practice that probably many of you do. Forming an intentional spiritual friendship. This one's tricky. Most of us have lots of friends. But it's so easy for those relationships to stay surface, to not ask the spiritual questions. How are you and God doing today? How's your relationship with the Lord being impacted by everything going on in the world? Where do you see him at work? Maybe consider making a commitment with one friend to have those sorts of deeper conversations. I've been surprised at the number of times recently that I flip open to the passage that Mark and I mapped out weeks ago to be preached on, and I'm just struck by the relevance for today. And I felt that this morning, that this, this invitation to, to fan into flame the gift of God within each one of us is an invitation that we desperately need now, today. So I want to encourage you to take that home with you and to take some time before you watch the Super Bowl, I don't know, after you watch the Super Bowl, to spend some time reflecting on what is God wanting me to do? How can I be drawing deeper into God's heart so that I can in turn be more effective in being a witness and a light for him out in the world this week? Let me pray for us and then we're going to come to the table.